This is Old Testament Premium Podcast number four on the life of Abraham. With Abraham, whose birth is recorded at the end of Genesis 11, we move from the primeval period, that is the first age of mankind, into the mainstream of Old Testament history. Abraham is a pivotal character. He's mentioned in many chapters of the Old Testament outside of Genesis 11 to 25, where he primarily appears, and he's also mentioned in 25 different New Testament chapters. He's a great man of faith. He's an ancestor of Jesus Christ, in fact, an ancestor of David. The lineage in Matthew 1, the opening of the New Testament, moves from Abraham through David and all the way down to Jesus. Abraham is a man of faith. His wife, Sarah, who we'll look at next time, is definitely a woman of faith. There's much to say about Abraham. And what I've decided to do is try to encapsulate the lessons of faith in just a few points. And that first point is that faith keeps moving. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 12. Just for the sake of simplicity, I'll remind you that Abraham previously lived in Ur and his family moved from there to Haran, which was halfway between Ur and and Canaan. But in chapter 12, God says, it's time now to leave Haran. It's time to go to the promised land. And so that's where we're going to begin right now. Let's read. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you The one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth, I should say Abram, because his name is not yet changed. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, thus they came the land of Canaan. Genesis 12, Abraham, the man of faith, a faith that keeps moving. What kind of moving are we talking about? Are we talking about geographical moves? Is that what God wants us to make? Well, perhaps. And for many of us listening to these podcasts, we've moved before. If you have moved uh, just a few times in your life, you're very fortunate And in Western society, moving becomes more and more common. Uh, Even for me and for my family, we've had many moves um, as missionaries, as preacher and wife. Uh, We've had eight international moves, in fact. But I don't believe that the passage is telling us we need to move internationally. That could be. But I think it's a spiritual move. And basically, if we move forward and keep in step with the Lord keep in step with the Spirit, we grow. But if we don't determine to move forward, we tend to drift backward. We slip. We regress. What we see Abraham doing is this. He leaves Haran immediately, giving up his security and quite likely his good reputation. Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, which we'll return to later, are commentaries on his life from the New Testament. And they highlight his faith and his obedience. He did not use age as an excuse. He was 75 years old at this point. And even if 
you listening to this podcast are 75. Remember, Abraham was faithful for many years after that, living on the edge. There was no excuse with his possessions or family responsibilities. He brought his wife with him. If you're a husband, do you bring your wife with you, so to speak? Or is your wife bringing you along? Without Abraham's strong spiritual influence, would Sarah have become everything that she could have become in God's sight, an awesome woman of God, 1 Peter 3, 6? And finally, whereas Abraham's father had only gone to Haran, although he'd set out for Canaan, Abraham was willing to go all the way. Yes, Haran was on the way to the promised land, but definitely not in it. Where are you living spiritually? Er, are you spending your days in the world? Do you blend in with your old friends instead of shining like a star as you hold out the word of life? Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans, was a center of idolatry, a center of moon worship. This was Abraham's background, this was his family of origin, this was the culture in which he was marinated in his earlier days. Are we living in Ur, or are we in Haran? Have you gone only part way to the life God's called you to? Do the words mediocrity and compromise apply to the way we live our lives every day? Is that Haran, or are we in Canaan? Have we gone all the way? Do we delight in radical decisions and sacrifice? Which place are we living in? We've got to be honest. And if it's not the promised land, by all means, let's make every effort to arrive there as soon as possible. So the first point is very simply, faith keeps moving. We go forward or we go backward. This is commented upon by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was received for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Please read the whole passage, Hebrews 11, uh, starting in verse 8. There's so much there for us. We've got to keep moving. We've got to keep moving. Perhaps it means a geographical move. Perhaps it means changing our set of friends. Are they influencing us in a positive way? Perhaps it's leaving a sin behind. Or perhaps it's simply striking out and doing something bold. I remember one of the scariest times of my life. I had won a scholarship to university. And at the end of my degree, I had a chance to go to England. It was my first time outside North America. I went to Oxford University. And I felt very excited to be there. First, very intimidated because Oxford's Oxford and the name is impressive and scary. But after a few days, you learn how to work the system and it's not quite as scary as it was to start with. But the other way I was intimidated was this. There were hundreds of students around. And although I met some who said they believed in Jesus Christ, there was a high degree of compromise. And I felt a burden on my heart to start a group Bible discussion. Well, I let the first week go by. I was too afraid to do anything with it. I was sharing my faith and talking to people, but I I thought, whoa, what if it doesn't go well? But in the second week, I made a decision. What do you do? You just jump in. You start telling people, we're doing this. It'll be in my dorm room. Maybe it'll be in your apartment or your house. At that time, I was living in student quarters. And, and, And you announce it, and you commit, and people come, And it goes okay, and you grow. 
You see, we've got to go forward or we go backward. Let's be like Abraham. Faith keeps moving. Secondly, faith embraces God's promises. God makes so many important promises to us. For example, the promise that we won't be consumed or overwhelmed with sin. There's always a way out, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The promise that will be abundantly productive, John 15, 16. Or that by faith we can do incredible things, Mark eleven twenty four. Well, the promises that God made to Abraham that we just read are three in number. In fact, we will call this the triple promise. There are three promises. And this is a, a pivotal passage in Genesis and in the life of Abraham, just as Abraham is a pivotal character in the Bible as a whole. Understanding God's triple promise to Abraham will give us a handle on the Old Testament. And in fact, on the whole Bible. It's simply not possible without grasping the significance of these promises. Because as we'll see, these promises weren't just for Abraham, or even for the Jewish people, but for us too. And once again, let's go back more than 150 generations. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The first promise we see is the nation promise. In the Exodus from Egypt, we read about this in chapter uh, 12 with the Passover up to chapter 14 as I go through the sea in Exodus. God makes Israel, formerly a loose alliance of slaves, in 12 tribes, into one nation and a force to be reckoned with. But the verdict of Old Testament history is that Israel enjoyed self-rule more than God-rule. For example, look in 1 Samuel 8. The promise of God to Abraham was not fulfilled for over half a millennium. That is, he spoke to Abraham roughly 2000 BC. It's more than half a millennium later that Israel becomes a nation. Oh yes, uh, there were 70 or so men who went up uh, in the time of Joseph, uh, perhaps around the 19th century BC, but they're there for centuries before they emerge. So the question is, how patient am I? The nation promise was fulfilled. Israel became a nation. Secondly, the land promise. Although Abraham and his family moved to Canaan, the land promise wasn't fulfilled till the conquest under the skillful general Joshua. And we see this in Joshua 21.43, which says very simply that not one of God's promises failed here, and, and God gave the land to the people. This promise was fulfilled even later than the first. It's really important to understand the place of land in Jewish thought. To be in your land or on your land is to be blessed, to be secure, to be happy. To live outside your land is more than estrangement and alienation. It's shame. It's God's punishment. Uh, Passages like Deuteronomy 28 take on a new light. Interestingly, um, Adam and then Cain moved away from their land. Adam moved away from Eden. Cain moved away and into the land of Nod. With Abraham, finally, we're going the other way. There's a positive geographical spiritual move. That is, Abraham is going from a place of uh, less light to a place of more light. Following God's will, uh, he's, he's going in faith. The land promise, Joshua 21, 43, was fulfilled. Israel not only became a nation, 
but it got its land. It's true that later passages say that the Lord would bring the Israelites back from Persian exile. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, Babylonians, then the Persians took over and they were returned and this was all fulfilled as we see in Second Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1. But uh, So they came back to the land. The land promise was fulfilled in the Old Testament, but not the third promise, the spiritual promise. Through Abraham's offspring, God would bless the entire world. Now, Abraham partly blessed some peoples in his lifetime. There was good that came uh, to the Philistines, for example, to the Egyptians through him and through his offspring. Actually, when he lied to the Egyptians in Genesis 12, it brought a curse. When he lied to the Philistines in Genesis 20, uh, they were opposed, they were cursed. But in general, uh, his, his influence was to be a blessing. But it was very limited. And it was greater through his son Isaac and grandson Jacob, still limited. And even Joseph in chapter 41, when Joseph has become number two in Egypt and all the surrounding nations go there to buy grain from him and thus are preserved, these nations are blessed, but it's not a spiritual blessing, it's a physical blessing, and it's only the nations of that part of the Mediterranean, that is the Eastern Mediterranean. Check it out in Genesis 41:57. So we actually end the Old Testament with visions of the whole world hearing the word. For example, Psalm 100, Zechariah 8:23, one of my favorites, Isaiah 49:6, which is quoted in the New Testament. But the spiritual promise is not really fulfilled. Through Abraham's offspring, God would bless the entire world. But ultimately, the promise fulfilled in Christ only comes true two millennia later. God never meant to create a nation of selfish, inward-focused religious persons. Deuteronomy 9 emphasizes this. Israel were God's chosen people. What does that mean? Chosen to share. Chosen to become a channel of his blessings to all mankind. And so are we. Blessings bring responsibility. Faith embraces God's promise. Abraham left immediately. And even though he had no descendants at this point, he believed that he would become the progenitor of a nation that would receive land and somehow God's greater purposes would be fulfilled through him. A great passage to read in connection with this is Exodus 19.6, where we see God calling Israel to be not just a nation, but a holy nation. Faith keeps moving. Faith embraces God's promises. Now, let's go on a little bit further uh, into our third point, Faith acknowledges a higher order. For some of you, this may be the most intriguing point, but I'm afraid it may be one of the shortest points. You see, there's so much about Abraham in the Bible. He's mentioned about 345 times. He's mentioned so many times that we have to keep moving, otherwise we won't do justice. But where am I getting this from? Faith acknowledges a higher order. In Genesis 14... And you have to just look over it later on, and you've probably read it already. But in Genesis 14, Abraham gets involved in a, a battle. And he's coming back, uh, victorious, with plunder. And he meets a character from Jerusalem. Now, this is long before there is an Israel, and it's certainly even longer before uh, Jerusalem was the city of David. 
Now, Melchizedek is a priest and a king. He combines both functions. And when Abraham meets him, he bows down. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tithe. That is, he gives him 10% of uh, the, the, the booty from war. Well, if Melchizedek is the one blessing Abraham, and Abraham's the one giving him uh, the, some of the plunder from war, that shows that Melchizedek is at a higher level. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 7 picks up on this. Please study that passage. Because Melchizedek is not your normal priest. He's not a Levite. Of course, Levi's not even born. He's still in the loins of Abraham. He's Abraham's, uh, what is he, his great-grandson. He's not even been born yet. But Melchizedek combines king and priest. There's a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a well-known passage. Jesus, in fact, stumps the crowd, stumps the Pharisees, because he says, now wait a minute. If it's about the Messiah, then how can David call him Lord? If he's the son of David, how can he be David's Lord? Well, of course, we know the answer, because the Messiah is human and divine. Well, it, Psalm 110 continues in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Messiah himself would be a priest. Now this is a big problem for an ancient Jew because to be a priest you have to be in the tribe of Levi. David and the son of David, that is Messiah, are from the tribe of Judah. Is there any biblical example for a priesthood that's not from Levi, a non-Levitical priesthood? Yes, there is. Thank you. Genesis 14. In fact, the king of Jerusalem, and this is a physical Zion, not a heavenly Zion, but that king combines priesthood and uh, monarchy in one person. And so Melchizedek is a figure who's not only representative of the Messiah, but he shows that there are people on the planet who are living in a right relationship with God, even though they're not actually part of the system. And when I say the system, I mean the, the revealed system. This is a common question. Well, what about, can anyone make it? Who's, or does everyone have to go through us? I think any group will ask that question. Well, Melchizedek is not only outside the group, he's way above the group, just as Jesus is. And faith is humble. It acknowledges a higher order. I hope that's intriguing to you. Sorry, we've got to go on to number four. Faith believes the unbelievable. The key passage here is chapter 15, verse 6. You know, Abraham is getting older, and God gives him some assurance. And this is such a vital passage that it is referred to in the New Testament more than once, and there's a, quite a commentary on it in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 4. But let's just look at this. God appears to Abraham in a vision, verse 1, tells him not to fear. I think fear is a reality in all of our lives. He says, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, Abraham wants to, he wants to go around the system a little bit. He says, well, I don't have any children. How about this? I have a legal heir. That's a man named Eliezer. He's in Damascus, Syria. And since he's my legal heir, he's in my will. We'll just let it work out that way. Then, then Sarah doesn't have to have a baby like that's ever going to happen. And we'll solve our problem. Well, 
That was uh, very clever, and that's not the first time Abraham will try to figure out a better way, <laughs> better than God's way. But God does not accept it. The, the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 4. This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And the Lord took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Imagine being overwhelmed, looking up and seeing thousands of pinpricks of light, thousands of stars on a clear and unpolluted sky. And then verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham believed this message, and God counted it as righteousness. You see, Abraham has faith. His natural tendency is to try to improve on God's way. He does it again in chapter 16, as he and Sarah have a child, Ishmael, through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. We'll, We'll be talking about this in the next couple of lessons. But Abraham deep down knows that God is right. He believes the unbelievable, and yet he still needs affirmation. And so God makes a covenant with him, and an incredibly eerie, nocturnal appearance of the Lord uh, consummating the sacrifice happens. And we read about this in verses 9 and following. But let me jump ahead to the New Testament and see what the Apostle Paul says about this point. Romans 4.1 What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6 Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, at this point, Paul quotes Psalm 32 about the blessing of forgiveness, and he makes a very important point when he asks a question about Abraham's calling. How then was it reckoned, verse 10, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Now the point Paul's making is not that the Jews didn't really have to be circumcised, or Christians don't really have to be baptized. That that would be way off the subject. His point is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by law-keeping. See, he was justified by faith. He was right with God even before he was circumcised. That doesn't come until chapter 17, as we'll see. And so, what makes a man Jewish? Uh, Keeping the law of Moses, which wasn't yet given. Circumcision. Abraham himself wasn't circumcised yet. He was justified even before he he, well, before he was circumcised. I almost said before he became a Jew, but technically he never became a Jew. Because Judaism does not really begin until we have the exodus, the redemption from Israel, I mean from Egypt, and then Israel's in the desert and Moses goes up Sinai and gets the law, and now we've got actual Judaism. Faith believes the unbelievable. And what things do we believe? You know, there's some things that are unbelievable that we can change, we can overcome. One of my favorite New Testament passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 to where the the apostle reels off a number of sins, some quite serious, and then he says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You see, we can change. 
families can change. Children can change. Marriages can change. Uh, I have so many examples of, of marriages on the rocks that have turned out incredibly well. Family members who resisted the gospel for years or who left the Lord and came back after 10 or 20 years. You know, people really do change. And there are some aspects to faith that are, are quite shocking. I mean, firstly, we believe in, unbe- in an invisible God. Uh, we, we believe that this world will pass away. One day it's, it's going to be destroyed. What's going to happen? That takes faith. But sometimes that's easier to accept than, hey, can I change? Will I ever change? Faith, however, believes the unbelievable. And notice God's time scale. Decades are going by. The clock is ticking. Before we go to uh, point number four, let me just make a comment. We, we'll have a whole lesson on Ishmael. But in chapter 16, verse 11, Ishmael is born. He's born through an interesting legal practice that was common at the day where a man's maidservant would become pregnant by him and then she would deliver the child into the lap of, of his wife, of the man's wife, and it would legally be his child. And so this was uh, Abraham's plan B. You know, Well, plan A, I, I suppose, was Sarah gets pregnant, but that didn't happen. So then plan B was Eliezer of Damascus. Then plan C was, how about Ishmael? God didn't accept that. No, there was no plan D. It was plan A all along. And Sarah becomes pregnant later. But in chapter 16, Ishmael is born. And we'll have a whole study on him. He's very important. But please notice the words of Abraham in chapter 17, verse 17. When uh, it's just not so clear how things are going to work out with, with, with this uh, natural son. And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Oh, that's something we say. You know, Lord, I, I just wish you'd change the rules. I, I just wish there could be a different way, an easier way. Well, why, why did he feel so strongly? And the short answer is, he loved Ishmael so much. Favoritism. Favoritism is a big theme in the book of Genesis. And Abraham seems to favor Ishmael even to Isaac. So we'll return to that later on. I just make a note in passing. Okay, where are we? Faith keeps moving. Faith embraces God's promises. Faith acknowledges a higher order. Faith believes the unbelievable. And number five, faith is quick to obey. When God tells Abraham to circumcise himself and his family, his servants, he does it immediately. And this is in Genesis chapter 17. In fact, according to verse 23, he did it the same day. He didn't wait. Now, I would be tempted to put it off. You know, the Latin word for put it off for tomorrow is procrastinare. We get the, we get the English word procrastinate from it. I would be more tempted to put it off for a year or indefinitely. Uh, Abraham, you know, Lord says you need to be circumcised. He does it the same day. He obeys swiftly, even though it's painful. And this reminds me of Psalm 119, verse 60. Listen to what the psalmist says. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Is that our attitude? Do we have the faith of Abraham? Again, some things it's okay to delay. I, uh, I pack a lot into my daily schedule. And to help me, in my computer, I have Outlook, Microsoft Outlook. And Outlook has a calendar and scheduling program. And one thing I like about it is that it reminds me of things that I might forget. Another thing is, you can enter an item on one day, and if that day's a bit busy, you can drag it to the next day. Or I can 
put it a week ahead. And I actually do this quite frequently. Uh, that's okay. But you know, there's some things you don't want to click and drag and drag to another day. Some things you just need to do. And you need to do it without delay. Right. We need to obey. James comments on Abraham. In James 2.20, he offers evidence that faith without works is useless. I'm going to read James 2.21-24. to 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, no surprise that some of the reformers, even Martin Luther himself, basically said James should not even be in the New Testament because this is false doctrine. This is not fit even to read. The idea that faith is not really faith without works, that we're justified by works and not faith alone, but it's there in the Bible. The early Christians saw, saw no contradiction between faith and deeds. I think they would have scratched their head in befuddlement. If we were asking now, are we saved by faith or, or works? Are we justified by what we do or, or just by what we believe? Surely these are two sides of the same coin. And I believe it's a fairly modern question. That is, it came up in the Reformation in the 1500s, but not, not much before then. Well, what does James show us? It's that in obedience, our faith is perfected. In obedience, we are reckoned as righteous. No, he's not saying you earn your salvation. But a dead uh, faith, a faith without works is dead, just as the body is dead, and that will not lead to justification. We also saw in James 2.23 that Abraham was called the friend of God. And he's actually called this several times in the Bible, in the Chronicles, in Isaiah. He's called the friend of God. He has a close relationship with the Lord. That's connected, surely, to this fact, that Abraham was quick to obey because faith is quick to obey how about you and me do we procrastinate or do we get on it do we obey the easy commands first and and put off the other ones or do we do we do we grab the bull by the horns and go for it number six faith is authentic well abraham has a he has the command for circumcision. He gets circumcised. Ishmael is circumcised. Uh, the birth of Isaac is promised. And then in chapter uh, 18, uh, we'll, we'll cover that next time we talk about uh, uh, Sarah, because that will be very encouraging. But in chapter 18, God tells Abraham, you have family in Sodom, and I'm about to destroy Sodom. And it's, a, it's an incredible passage. Abraham boldly goes to God and essentially bargains God down from a limit or a threshold of 50 righteous people down to 10. Now, of course, God didn't really change his mind. But Abraham approaches them, approaches God as though he'll be changing God's mind and as though perhaps the truth is somewhere between his position and God's position. Abraham is very authentic. I love the way he, the way he, he, he approaches the Lord in verse 25. I'm in Genesis 18.25. I know I'm getting a bit excited here. But this is such a great passage. Abraham is so authentic. He's so disturbed by the thought that, that Sodom and maybe some 
innocent people would be killed, he says, Far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. You shall not, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Or another version, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Because if the judge of all the earth is corrupt, like an unjust judge, we're in trouble. I like to illustrate it this way. If you were in an airplane and the pilot came on the loudspeaker and he started mumbling incoherently and he was saying something about the whiskey he'd been drinking and the crew's really having a great time, wouldn't you feel nervous if you thought that the one who was kind of in charge of your destiny on that plane uh, had compromised his senses? Or worse, if he was a monster, an evil person. See, if the one who's conducting the entire universe is unfair or arbitrary, we're in trouble. Abraham says that's unthinkable. It's unconscionable. And he voices this concern to the Lord. Surely, Lord, you'll do what's right. And we're, we're, we're very familiar with their dialogue as he says, what if there are 50 righteous persons? What if there are 45, etc.? But please focus on this, on verse 25. Abraham is deeply concerned for justice. He's deeply committed, a priori, to this fact that God, by definition, is fair. If God's not fair, everything falls apart. And this is the authentic prayer we see in this man. Real prayers are also illustrated for us in the Psalms. Psalms are actually an example of of great prayer. Psalms, uh, so many of them, they're actually hard to use publicly uh, because people are letting go. They're saying what they really think, probably things that are better said to God than said to others face to face. Expressing real feelings, things that hurt, things that we long for, uh, being authentic. This is a mark of faith. It doesn't just pretend. It's not so proper. It's not all so tidy. But there, when we, we're bothered by something, we say, you know, this bothers me. Maybe even this passage in the Bible bothers me. I'm working on it. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Or this doesn't seem right. I mean, I know God's right. I, I know His Word's true. But I've I got to work through it. It's a process. That's what faith is like. That's how it can go forward. That's how it can be quick to obey. Because it deals with things. It's authentic. And last and seventhly, faith trusts God with what is most precious. In chapter 22, Abraham told to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loves, in language that's certainly reminiscent of the the sacrifice of Jesus. Abraham goes to Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. If we were doing a study of prophecy, we would find ten parallels between the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Jesus. I've got material on that at my website. Can't do it right now. Sorry about that. But Abraham is willing to go to Moriah, interestingly, the same land where Jesus was sacrificed, the same place where the temple was built, Second Chronicles 3. It's the same place. And, and I want to read the commentary on this, which we find in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Well, that's in Hebrews 11, verses 17, 18, 19. Isaac was finally born. 
uh, in chapter 21. And in chapter 22, God tells him to sacrifice his son. Now, human sacrifice is something that God opposes throughout the Bible. And so it's quite an odd command to begin with, and we're not really surprised when God halts him. You can hardly believe that the judge of all the earth would be doing something like this. But it's a test for Abraham. And of course, God God had planned that the, the ram that was caught in the thicket would be sacrificed instead. He didn't mean for, for Isaac to die. But Abraham didn't know that, did he? Did he really know? He's willing to trust God with what was most precious because without Isaac, how could these promises be fulfilled? The land, the nation, uh, the, the spiritual promise. Without descendants, you're nobody in the ancient world. In traditional society, without descendants, you're, you have no one to perpetuate your name, no one to carry on the family. I mean, God had even greater promises attached to this child. This was the child of promise that through him, through his seed, Abraham's seed, Isaac, the whole world would be blessed. And yet Abraham doesn't hold back. Just as in chapter 17 with circumcision, so he hastens and does not delay to obey this command. Do we trust God with what is precious? Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's our romantic life. If you're a single person, if it's God's will for you to marry, are you really trusting him? Are you taking things into your own hands? Do we trust God with what's most precious? Is it our money? Is it our health? Is it our sense of vindication? Uh, uh, getting credit? Are we willing just to trust God? This is what we see in this great man of faith. We see seven incredible qualities. Because true faith keeps moving, embraces God's promise, acknowledges a higher order, believes the unbelievable. It's quick to obey. It's authentic. It trusts God with what is most precious. In chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham dies. And in a very touching verse, we read that he was buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Together, they buried him. We'll have a lesson on these fellows later on. But it's so moving to see that these brothers, with all the tension in their family, have come together to bury their father. That's uh, very encouraging uh, to anyone who reads it. Abraham lives by faith, not by fear. Am I like Abraham? Am I seeking a relationship with the Lord? Could I be called God's friend? That's the question. To walk in Abraham's footsteps means this. To be on the move. To be on the move, and quite possibly landless. To believe, even when the facts don't paint a pretty picture. To obey, even with only partial understanding. Living by faith not fear, means living with a low and large horizon, with expansive hopes for the future, looking for a new world, seeking the glory of God. Well, in the notes that are attached to this lesson, you'll find a few comments on the Hebrew names we've come across. Avram, Avraham, Sarai, Sarah, Yishmael. Uh, I'll give you some suggestions for further study inside the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'll even make a comment from the Quran where Abraham is mentioned in 21 different chapters. The key verses to focus on, 12.3, that's the triple promise, the spiritual promise. 15.6, it was credited to him as righteousness. And 18.25, where he pleads with God, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Those are the three passages I would learn if I were trying to really get a handle on the Abraham narrative. There's some great things we learn about about God in this passage. Uh, God is in no rush. We get impatient after minutes. God, 
Oh, he lets decades go past in the blink of an eye. He's a just judge. He wants all to make it. First Timothy 2, 4. And last, friendship is based on obedience. And I shouldn't say last because there are probably many things we learn about God. But those are three things that emerge. I'll give you a few ideas for family devotionals. Our next study will be on Sarah. Thanks for listening to this podcast.